Welcome to Ventricles, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza. This episode is part of a series about the history of technology and its relationship to politics. I sit down with Gabriela Soto Laviega, a professor in the History of Science department at Harvard, to speak about how the history of the birth control pill starts in the jungles of southern Mexico. The birth control pill is considered to be a landmark technology in the history of reproductive health and women's liberation. Its history has been told in many ways, sometimes focused on feminists Margaret Sanger and Catherine McCormick, sometimes on various doctors and chemists, but always focused on the United States. Recentering this story, retelling it in a way that we must step out of the laboratories in order to understand how a pharmaceutical is made. And when we do that, we discover that we have to then change the definition of what science is and who scientists are. Our conversation today will center on the research Professor Laviega did in her book, Jungle Laboratories. So how do the jungles of southern Mexico feature in the history of the pill? And why does she call them laboratories? Keep listening to find out. So, Professor Laviega, what is the history of the birth control pill? So, when we think about the history of the birth control pill, we tend to think of either scientific advances or we think about uh, the involvement of universities or pharmaceutical companies. But I would like people to always think about jungles first. I think the history of the birth control pill begins in the jungles of southern Mexico. To get to that point, I need to backtrack a bit and explain that in the 1930s, there was this global race to try to find synthetic steroid hormones. We had finally understood how steroid hormones worked in the body, but we didn't really know how to reproduce them outside of the human body. What are steroid hormones? They're often described as messengers that go around the body and make sure that, um, that the body is ready to embrace change or is ready for change. But they also are needed, hormones in general, for reproduction, um, for anything that has to do with growth in the body. So in the 1930s, people were uh, people in the West and other parts of the world, they were trying to figure out a way to make this out of... Um, plants or no initially so we we grew to know hormones mainly because of when hormones don't work mm. so of diseases that either someone who uh, lacked or could not create insulin or someone who had an excess of a certain hormone who might have might grow too too much or someone who lacked a certain type of hormone so our understanding of hormones was mainly linked to biological functions and usually when these um, functions in the body didn't work. So most scientists thought that they would be able to find solutions for hormones in other or organisms. Like, so they looked initially in the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. So you had scientists, for example, in Norway who decided that the best thing would be to get a whale because they assumed, well, hormones, we can find them in uh, ovaries, we can find them in testes. So if we get a whale... 
the amount, the size of these organs would be significant enough that we would be able to derive a much larger number of these steroid hormones that we needed. As you can imagine, that didn't work really well. The Germans uh, came up with another creative idea and they thought, well, in urine, we can find traces of hormones. And uh, where is a great place to collect urine? Well, they said outside barracks, soldiers' barracks, and outside beer halls. So you would have these large vats where men were required or asked to go urinate, and they would derive small quantities of hormones from the urine. I see. And this would be used to, uh, I guess, to develop treatments for people who didn't have enough? Absolutely. But it was incredibly expensive and tedious. As you can imagine, trying to find a solution in the animal kingdom for how to find synthetic steroid hormones proved quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So it occurred to an American chemist named Russell Marker that if they couldn't find the answer in the animal kingdom, maybe they could find it in the plant kingdom. Mm -hmm. And he begins this rather circuitous route of trying to test different plants to see if they contained a substance that might mimic steroid hormones in the body. And he goes all over the United States. And according to Russell Marker's biographers, he was at a friend's house in Texas and had insomnia and reached across to pick up a book. And in this book, he finds a picture of a yam, a giant yam that he had never seen. And it said that this yam contained diostenin, which was the substance he was looking for. Wow. Lucky find. Lucky find. And there was just one problem. It was the early 1940s, and the world was at war. So it was not that easy for him to get to the place where this yam was located, which, according to the book, was the jungles of southern Mexico. So he finally uh, manages to get on a train and head uh, south to Mexico, finagles his way to get permissions from the American embassy in Mexico City, makes his way to Veracruz, without speaking Spanish, and somehow manages to convince a shop owner and describe this route in such a way that the shop owner says, come back the next day. And he comes back the next day, and he's found two specimens of this yam that he had seen in the book. Mm. And he takes them back to Mexico City, where he has a makeshift laboratory, and in a matter of short amount of time is able to produce more progesterone than had ever been produced up until that time. Wow. Is progesterone directly made from diostenin? So diostenin is the foundation from which one can make all other steroid hormones. Russell Marker is in Veracruz. He's in Mexico City when he figures out he can do this. I'm really curious if part of the reason that someone had investigated whether diostenin was even in Barbasco is because of the way the route was used by people in these jungles of Mexico. So um, that's, a, that's a really great question, because as you can imagine, when you have something like the find of Barbasco, there are many stories, origin stories, of how Russell Marker came about to find Barbasco. So one is the story of him speaking to the shop owner named Moreno, and which there is documented evidence of this. But another one of the, the major stories is that he observed fishermen in a pond throwing up mashed up roots into the water and that there were suds that were created and within a matter of minutes fish would come to the surface 
the fishermen would quite easily scoop up the fish and then go home. So I, I had a question. That's Angel Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in the history of science at Harvard. Maybe you can describe the physical properties of Barbasco. So like if we were to hold it in our hand, mm-hmm. what would it feel like? How heavy is it? There are several different types of Barbasco depending where in Mexico you are. But the one that became commercially viable was uh, Dioscoria composita. Mm-hmm. And this this Barbasco, this particular yam, contained a higher percentage of the chemical that was needed to produce these steroid hormones. So if you were to hold it in your hand, you would need both hands because this is a giant yam. And when I say giant, I'm talking, it can weigh as much as 80 pounds. So these are huge roots. And in order to take something like that out, what you need to do was create SUV-sized holes in the jungle in order to dig up this yam. And the reason for that is that eventually each piece of this yam was so valuable that you didn't want to leave anything in the ground, which was a problem because this yam was self-regenerating that you could leave a small piece like a potato in the dirt and then another barbasco would emerge from there. And there are stories that most people didn't like to handle it with their bare hands, but they all did women especially claimed that when they were digging through the ground that the barbasco would burn under their fingernails mm. and if they, they had a cut in their feet which was common if you didn't have shoes or if you were wearing open-toed huaraches that are so common in southern Mexico that they could feel this burning sensation from the barbasco oils or the, that was contained in the yam. Once Marker brings these giant roots with him back to Mexico City, he isolates a greater amount of diastrinin from them than has ever been done from any plant or anything, anything anything at all. And um, he realizes the significance of what he's found. But, um, you know, how how then does that transform into an industry into an industry or into the birth control pill? By deriving diastrinin, he's able to get to progesterone. It's really difficult to understand how important and how difficult it was to obtain unless we understand that at that time progesterone was valued at more than gold. And the reason progesterone was so valuable, it was believed to be a cure-all. That if one could find a way to synthesize progesterone, then it could cure a variety of diseases. Everything from hysteria in women to um, obesity to uh, mood disorders, from marker to an industry is a really interesting jump because marker needed a laboratory and he didn't have one in Mexico. So he began to write to the major laboratories and his papers are found in Penn State. And he begins to write to these ma- Johnson and Johnson, Park Davis, Searle. I mean, the, think of any major pharmaceutical industry of the mid 20th century. And he writes to them and none of them want to go into this, despite the fact that I just said it's incredibly lucrative. Right. It's because of what's going on geopolitically. Mm. It's a world at war, but also um, Mexico had recently expropriated the oil companies from the United States and from Britain. I see. So they thought that international business would not work on the ground. I think this is a good um, window into sharing with the audience 
how it is that politics and science are sort of related. Um, not just that there's this eureka moment of discovery, but there's sort of a political environment that encourages or prevents certain investment, certain um, industrial uh, pursuit. Mm-hmm. If Marker never found a lab, I'm guessing he did because we have the birth control bill. <laughs> but if he never found a lab, then maybe we wouldn't have it in the way we have it now. And, and that's a really great point that you're raising, this link between politics and science, because it's not something that is usually readily apparent. and uh, But also the tangible need for the physical laboratory. And he, remember, he doesn't speak Spanish. Right. But he goes to a phone book and he begins to look for laboratory, which is laboratorio, <laughs> which is very similar. And to his great surprise and happiness, there's a laboratorio hormona, hormone laboratory in Mexico City. And he's like, these people are going to help me. Right. So he shows up with his jars of progesterone. Remember, this is more progesterone than has ever been had <laughs> anywhere in the world, ever. It's like liquid so gold, I think. I think you call it from green to gold. Yeah, exactly. So it really is gold. And he gets there, and he's like, I have progesterone. <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> Who is this white gringo coming to this laboratory in Mexico City yeah. saying that I have this progesterone? Fortunately... One of the chemists at Laboratorio Hormona had read Marker's papers. Wow. And he's able to, um, to make the association. And they come to an agreement, the owner of the laboratory, the chemist and Marker, that they will create a new laboratory, and they will call it Syntex. And Syntex is the merging of the word synthesis for synthesizing hormones and X for MEX, so Syntex. And Syntex would become the largest and most powerful pharmaceutical company of the Western Hemisphere for a couple of years. How does the company get Barbasco to the lab and from the lab to all of the people who want progesterone? That was the question that drove me to research this because I needed to understand how you would get these yams to the pharmaceutical laboratories. And it turned out that it was a much more complex and a much more riveting story than I could have ever imagined. Because it, if you remember, Russell Marker had relied on a local person to locate the yams for him. And it turned out that there was a lot of physical labor that was needed to remove this yam. But not just physical labor, you also needed local knowledge. Because I want you to imagine if you've never been in a jungle, but maybe you've been in a forest or you've been in um, a rich environmental space and there's a tangle of weeds, there's a tangle of trees, there's really no margins between where one plant ends and the other one begins. It's not a clear path. So now I want you to transport yourself to the jungles of southern Mexico where there are only footpaths, if that. No GPS. No GPS. (laughs) Exactly. And that what you see is um, all of these vines. And that was how they would locate Barbasco. They would follow what looked like a tendril. And those who were knowledgeable could tell by the width how 
potentially big the yam was. Remember, you really wanted the yam to be big because you were going to be paid in weight. So once you're there, you really needed local knowledge. You need to, you know, someone who has seen the jungle floor enough time and with enough knowledge that they can spot the tendril among the mass of plants. None of us would be able to spot the tendril. Right. Maybe one thing that would be helpful um, is to maybe talk about how this part of Mexico is very different Mm. than the rest of Mexico and how that difference provided maybe a kind of vocabulary for the local knowledge and like what would be some words that uh, in their in either an indigenous language or even in spanish but like what would be some words that were used um we're talking about when i say southern mexico we're talking about places like veracruz oaxaca chiapas which are highly indigenous areas of Mexico. And these were spaces where, in the 19th century, plantations, which came to be known as haciendas in Mexico, where they thrived, where you had monoculture, be it rubber, be it um, pineapples, uh, sugar cane was huge in this area. So when you ask me this, how this area is different from the rest of Mexico, it was a very hierarchical in terms of um, socioeconomic, but also in terms of race. So Spanish is not the predominant language in many of these places. And it's a place where oppression is quite high and where uh, resistance of local people. Um, this is a region in which um, land struggles have been significant Mm. and when we talk about land struggles and we talk about getting something out from under the ground like Barbasco and uh, where that plays into into this so it's not the first time say that um, an expensive commodity is sort of being um, built on the labor of people in southern Mexico and on their relationship with the land Absolutely. And this place in particular, so uh, much of the research I I did took place in and around the region of Tuxtepec. And Tuxtepec is in southern Oaxaca. And this was one of the areas where these plantation style, where these economies were taking place. And there were actual ballads that were made about Tuxtepec in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Because those who came to labor in the area of Tuxtepec would often live no longer than six months. So you would need this constant cycle of refreshing new bodies, new laborers. And there was this system called hooking, enganchar, hooking people in. And you would wait, for example, outside of bars when they were closing and people would stumble out uh, drunk. They would be loaded on a train and they would wake up and they would be in the fields of Tuxtepec. So there is this long tradition of labor abuse, and uh, you can just imagine if you were a body, a physical body that was not accustomed to the mosquitoes and the heat of, um, of this area, how something like malaria would kill you in six months or less. So there was this constant turnover. And a lot of those labor traditions from the 19th century, which seem so far away, 
were replicated in some ways with the Barbasco trade. Wow. Wow. So even if it wasn't directly a plantation structure, even if Barbasco was wild and not cultivated, somehow those labor structures were still present. So exactly. So what you began, what you had was this vertical power structure in which you would have someone who controlled not just the finances, but they also controlled the knowledge and they controlled the trade. And those people would not necessarily be the indigenous people who were harvesting Barbasco. Rarely. Once Russell Marker realizes that he's really going to need to rely on these people, an extraordinary labor network is formed. And this labor network will persist for about three decades. And the idea is that you would set up these local stations where these men, and they were all men, were given scales, and anyone could come in and drop off Barbasco. And what began as a small enterprise of one chemist asking a shopkeeper, by the height, you had 125,000 families, not individuals, involved in gathering Barbasco. It has a lot of people, but that also speaks to the amount of need of, for labor and currency. It's really hard if you're living in the jungle or if you're living in rural Mexico to get cash. And the great thing about Barbasco is pharmaceutical laboratories paid in cash. Mm. So you would have these middlemen traveling with sacks of bills to these stations where they were weighing the Barbasco. You would have lines of people just ready to drop off their Barbasco and be paid. Is this the kind of station that's pictured on the cover of Jungle Laboratories? Yes. So for those of you who may not have the book in front of you, Listeners can find this image on our website. We have linked you to the book. There is a, a man, and he's looking off into the distance, but he looks tired, and he's, he's dirty. His shirt is dirty, and the shirt is open. It's hot, and he's barefoot. And he holds in his hands what appear to be yams, and he has them resting in his lap. And if you take, I just want to point to his feet his feet are swollen, and there's a reason for that. In order to extract the needed chemicals from Barbasco, you needed to initially ferment the Barbasco for several days and let it dry in the sun for up to four days. But we're talking about a tropical jungle where the temperatures easily soar into the hundreds, especially in summer, and the sun is constantly beating. So you would have these cement blocks in the jungle. And the reason this man is barefoot is that every grain of diostenin was so valuable. Even a grain could not be wedged into a shoe. So these men would work drying the barbasco barefoot. And the feet are swollen because of the heat emanating from the concrete blocks. And what he has on his lap are some barbasco yams. And the photographer who took this image, Mariana Yampolsky, asked um, that he place the yams over his testicles as a reference to the hormonal properties found in Barbasco. None of us would be able to find the tendrils of Barbasco in the jungle. Um, this kind of knowledge, this being able to sort through, you know, um, a very complicated... Um, botan terrain. terrain, botanical environment, 
And being able to tell not only how big a plant is going to be, you know, having this choice really matter for your day-to-day survival as to am I going to take the time to dig this one up. Um, This all sounds like pretty complex decision-making, takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of effort. I think you calling that kind of knowledge laboratory knowledge, maybe scientific knowledge, is really interesting to people. We don't normally think of a laboratory as being somewhere outdoors and somewhere so far from these big cities, big wealthy cities, whether that be New York or Boston or Mexico City. So why did you choose to call the work of these people science and why did you choose to call the jungle a laboratory? Um, It became obvious pretty early on that the individuals who were digging up Barbasco may not have known what Barbasco became because it was imperative that they not know. And here was control of knowledge. And many people thought that it was used for soap because it produced suds in water. What they did know was their environment. They knew um, the place that was near their home so they could locate the plant. And uh, the reason I say that what they were doing was similar to what you find a chemist doing in his lab, is that individuals began to experiment with Barbasco. They realized that they would be paid more for Barbasco that yielded higher quantities of diostinin. So if you find this out, that you're going to be paid more for higher quantities of diostinin, wouldn't you begin to experiment yourself to find how you can produce higher diostinin-yielding barbasco. So this is what they begin to do. So it takes us right back to politics and science. Absolutely. And it takes us back to this innovation that's taking place in rural Mexico, where you have these Mexican peasants who are willing to not only experiment, but they use a series of cunning ways to also make barbasco more profitable. If it's paid by weight, what would one do? You would probably put stones or twigs or (laughs) mud or shape mud into barbasco roots and take it to the way stations. So that was one way of um, creating new value. But there was also a way of creating higher producing diastrogen. There's this great story that um, an older barbasquero told me once. And he said that there was this region in Mexico that had very poor quality barbasco. And... It was very badly paid. But then all of a sudden, great Barbasco started to emerge from this community. And they started to pay more for the Barbasco. And those who were on the outside looking in couldn't understand. They thought, maybe they're going farther away. Maybe they're digging it up from other places. And when they went to the local people, they said, oh, we have found a way to perform chemistry. And the idea was perform chemistry. And that they and they would never to this day reveal what they had done to create to make a, a higher potency. Exactly. Of of the yam. So they 
in the jungle, you know, in a particular region of southern Mexico, had figured out how to transform the basic raw material of the birth control pill to be a better raw material. Absolutely. And really this division that I'm saying between raw material and pill is also complicated because weren't there also healing properties of the root that were in use in some of these regions? I interviewed several traditional healers in the area when I was doing the work to try to understand how they used or understood Barbasco. And uh, without fail, every single one of them said, Barbasco is a very noble plant, but it is a powerful one and you need to respect the plant because it has the power to give life and it's the way they used it. Imagine working as a peasant harvesting crops, planting crops, tending to animals. It's physically intense labor where your muscles hurt. And barbasco soaked in alcohol could then be applied and rubbed and it would calm aching joints. Eventually, a cortisone would be derived from barbasco in addition to 300 other patent medications. So when you think of what cortisone does and it's linked to arthritis and how it would reduce arthritis pain, then it's not such a far leap to think about the Barbasco yam soaked in alcohol and applied on um, aching muscles or sore, sore muscles. So in that way, Barbasco gave life. It allowed peasants to continue working. But healers also, at least two of them mentioned that Barbasco, if there was a lot of rain and it happened to fall into the river, and they called it that the river had become embarbascado. And you would see a sudsy river. If there were cows downstream and they would drink this water, if any of those cows was pregnant, they would lose the calf. And the healers, I asked, do you perform abortions with barbasco? And they all said no, because as healers, they believed that uh, Barbasco was so powerful that they needed to really be careful of how they used it. So we have these, these uses of the root, even if they're not extracting some kind of active ingredient from it, they're using it for the sa- in, in the same way that pharmaceutical companies that did extract an active ingredient from it would eventually use it to treat joint pain uh, as an abortifacent. So that's very interesting that the people who, you know, more than, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who brought the, these yams to the markets for the birth control pill were also using it or had access to knowledge that this yam would perform that kind of function on the body. Absolutely. And I think I do want to just very um, briefly clarify that those who knew how to use Barbasco tended to be local healers. Mm. The local people, they might have used this um, as cures, but linking it very much to the, to the practices and the knowledge of local healers. The majority of those who were digging at Barbasco did not know what it was used for. So even within the jungle, there's a hierarchy Absolutely. of knowledge. Absolutely. So um, just to, for us to understand how Barbasco is then connect, connected to the pill and all these other patent medications, um, in 1949... This article comes out in Life magazine, and it astounds the world. And it says, a cure for arthritis 
found in Mexico. And the idea was that cortisone could be derived from Barbasco. And cortisone, which was, again, very difficult to manufacture, very difficult to obtain, would now be available in significant quantities. But the, the news didn't stop there. Two years later, it says progesterone derived from YLDM. And this is where we get to, um, to the value of Barbasco and why I link it to the pill. Mm -hmm. There was a Mexican student, he was a chemistry student, who was working in a lab that was run by Carl Gerasi, who is the self-named father of the pill, and George Rosencrantz. And if you look at his, at his notebooks, his lab notebooks, on October 17th, 1951, he writes that he has um, found another substance. And he believes that he has found a way to stop natural miscarriages. But what he has found is the complete opposite. He, what he finds that day in 1951 is what will become oral contraceptives. The student's um, name was Ernesto Miramontes. Whereas, you know, the last book that I saw about the pill was about the self-proclaimed father and Dr. Rosencrantz yes. and the two white feminist women who funded their operation. Mm -hmm. Margaret Sanger and, and McCormick. So, so what led you to look at his notebook? Um, I interviewed him uh, two months before he passed away. And when I went to his house, he had on the wall a copy of the patent to the pill. And he's the third person on the patent. So it's Carl Gerasi, George Rosencrantz, and Ernesto Miramontes. He has a copy, and it's called uh, the Patent Hall of Fame. And it's something that came out in a magazine. And I, it was very endearing to see that I believe his wife had had this framed. But it was also very revealing because here was this man who'd had this major contribution, and he was practically forgotten. And this was really surprising to me. We, everyone knew the history of the pill, but here was this older gentleman who was so earnest about what he had done, and no one knew his name. Mm. He should have been a household name. And um, part of that says something about how we tell histories, right. who we choose to highlight, who we choose to center our stories of discovery on, and who le gets left out of the narratives. Remember, he was a student, but he was an incredibly talented student. And his notebook is part of, um, in the Patent Hall of Fame, the one of the key elements that leads to the later commercialization of the pill. Wow. So not only are the um, the indigenous peasants in southern Mexico often left out of the story, even someone who was in what we traditionally think of as a laboratory, uh, you know, Dr. Miramontes, he is also forgotten. And even uh, Mexico's place in this story, mm. because when we think of the original laboratory in Mexico City, Syntex, in the 1950s, Syntex is bought out by American interest. And um, it's moved, the headquarters are moved close to Stanford, uh, and eventually that becomes what is now Roche Pharmaceuticals. But it was uh, moved to Stanford, where Carl Gerasi also moves. So this history of um, oral contraceptives suddenly moves as a story, and it becomes a story that's dominated by American actors and American scientists, American investors. Silicon Valley. In that area, exactly. 
And it's very quickly forgotten that there, there was this much more international history behind it. And this is sort of one of those stories about what changed about women's lives in the 20th century. Absolutely. Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Ventricles, about the history of technology in Latin America and what can be gained from studying technology and innovation outside of its stereotypical settings in Euro-America. This was the final episode of the first season of Ventricles, the podcast of the Science, Religion, and Culture program, and we hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please consider sharing the podcast. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics we discussed today, please check out the bibliography for this episode online at the Science, Religion, and Culture Program website, src.hds.harvard.edu. A special thank you for this music to the Overseas Ensemble, a collaboration between composer Paid Gonka and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan musicians who came together while working in Beirut.